0: Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. We're your hosts, Brad Stahlberg
1: and Steve Magnus. Brad, another wonderful day for a podcast. What's going on, my man? Oh, not so much. Um,
0: really looking forward to diving in. Today, we are going to talk about the benefits of doing something real in the world. It's a topic that we broached a little bit in last week's newsletter, um, but we're going to go from... 350 words to uh, you know the next 45 minutes with y'all to really
1: explore all right and before we go deep on doing something real just a reminder if you like real things you can sign up and support the growth equation podcast and newsletter by joining our patreon group Well, you'll get all sorts of awesome gifts including signed books by myself and brad Quarterly mastermind groups, a monthly book club where we get to talk to all sorts of great thinkers doing real things and all sorts of other goodies. In fact, we just sent out some promo stuff, some guides for Brad's upcoming book. So if you're interested in that, take a look, sign up. You can do so on www.patreon.com slash the growth equation. Yeah, sign up. A lot of great stuff. Support us.
0: Uh, and we'll we'll make sure that you guys get a lot of value out of that. It's a really wonderful community we're building over there. So I'm going to get right to it, Steve. Um, last week, shortly after the news came out that Bill Gates, um, who I had really admired, and I'm already using past tense, maybe too soon, more information will come out. But long story short, he's... Divorcing from Melinda, and we did a podcast on this, we both kind of just assumed that perhaps a big part of it was just super drive, inability to turn things off, not really present, not really there for his his wife, um, which isn't okay, but it's not wrong or right. It is just a divergence in what people want to get out of a relationship. Well, since we recorded that podcast, news comes out that Bill Gates engaged in quite a bit of questionable at best workplace behavior with women colleagues and more concerning. He was a frequenter of Jeffrey Epstein's, um, Manhattan apartment. And, um, you know, without knowing anything more that in itself, there's no guilt by association, but pretty dang close in this situation. So this isn't like an entertainment weekly gossip podcast. The reporting on Bill Gates will come out, um, as it comes out, but, It really put me in a mood that day, and I couldn't help but wonder why is it that so many super successful people, and I haven't looked at the data, but anecdotally men, when they get really successful, they just kind of turn into egotistical jerks, and they think that rules don't apply to them, and they become really out of touch with reality. And I'm sure I had spent too much time on Twitter looking at people that are out of touch with reality that morning. So it coalesced in in me feeling pretty down and just like, oh my gosh. And then wondering like, is this going to happen to me if I'm successful? So when I get in situations like this, I tend to look to wiser elders. Um, And one such person in my circle, as well as Steve's, is our close friend and mentor, uh, Mike Joyner. So for those that don't know, Mike has won the Distinguished Researcher Award at the Mayo Clinic, He is quoted in international publications on human performance. He's truly a world-renowned expert on um, human performance, on health, but he's also a practicing physician. The guy's incredible. More importantly, he's 62, he's super successful, and he's not an egotistical jerk. So over text and email, I wrote to Mike, I can't believe there are so many egotistical jerks why do all these people just completely lose touch? What is it about money or power or status that just turns you into a douche? Is it unavoidable? To which Mike responded 30 seconds later, I am getting more weight equipment. And, you know, that kind of answered my question. So I I heard that, and I didn't have to ask Mike to clarify because I know him really well. And what Mike is saying is that by... Squatting, bench pressing, deadlifting, lifting weights in his basement, he's preventing himself from becoming an egotistical jerk.
1: All right. You know, that reminds me of actually some advice another one of our mutual friends gave me um, a long time ago, which was when getting out of the competitive running field, he said, do interval training and that was Dave Epstein. And the reason that Dave said that is because most of the time when we're done competing, what happens is you just go for jogs, right? You just go jog around. It's enjoyable, all that stuff. But he gave me this advice to keep doing interval training. And I took it as not necessarily for the health benefits, but in the sense of You need to remember what it's like to do something hard, to do something difficult, where you come up against that kind of barrier and wall of, can I do this? Where are my limits? I'm not as good as I used to be. I'm not as good as these other people around you. And it really grounds you in reality. Yeah. And
0: I want to interject because I don't want to lose people that think this is just going to be an ode to powerlifting and running. Um, We might use those as examples because those are the two practices that Steve and I use to try to keep ourselves from becoming egotistical jerks. But it can be anything that is concrete in the real world. So the example that I wrote about last week that has nothing to do with sports is um, an executive coaching client who is extremely high up at a huge firm and is also one of the most humble, kind people that I work with. And he does woodworking in his basement three nights a week. So same thing, you know, it's not okay. Lifting a weight. you either drop the bar on the ground or you put it above your head or whatever running. You either come in at 49 to 50 or 55 to 60. Well, woodworking like the table, either stands or it falls down or it's got cracks in it or it doesn't, or the edges are smooth or they're rough. Um, another woman that I know that's super successful, also super humble, diehard gardener. Well, guess what? Like The plants either grow or they die. So it's not just about sport. It's about, hence the the title of this episode, it's about doing concrete, real things in the world. And I think what happens is when people get super successful in more heady intellectual or business fields, They lose touch with reality precisely because their failures are not real. So what I mean by this is Bill Gates, Elon Musk, you can screw up a business decision, but you can rationalize it, talk it away with corporate mumbo jumbo. Once you're successful enough, it just becomes another failure that you don't have to think twice about. You fail fast, you move forward, all of that stuff. But it's really easy to forget that you are a failable human. And when you lose that humility, everything goes to shit. And it's not a direct line to spending a lot of time at Jeff Epstein's apartment, but it's a pretty dang near close direct line to um, falling for all kinds of unwholesome temptations because you're not grounded.
1: Yeah, you know, it it really reminds me of the work of Matthew Crawford and his book uh, Shop Class for Shop Soulcraft. Class is Soulcraft. Yeah, that's what it is. Thanks, Fred. Um, where he talks about his experience working essentially as a um motorcycle mechanic right fixing up motorcycles and and stuff like that and his point is is he takes this like deep inquiry into work and the value that work itself brings and the things that we we get from it and in our kind of modern world we kind of get away from that that concreteness and I think that's what we're getting at here is is one of the ways to keep yourself grounded is to have something concrete in your world where you can fail at, you can succeed at, you can struggle with, and that feedback is readily apparent, right? And And not
0: contingent on what other people say or think. Right. Because you can present the PowerPoint deck and crush it and have a boss in a bad mood say that sucked, or the opposite, you can present the PowerPoint deck and it sucks. But if you're a gazillionaire, everyone's gonna look at you and say, Oh, dear king, that's so great. Well, those aren't true successes or failures. And we're writers. So like even I think that, you know, sometimes I rationalize or I, I try to maybe it's a little bit of um of of self righteousness when I'm not aware, but I'm like, well, like when you face the blank page, there's nothing there. And when you write, there's something there. And I do think that's more concrete than, um, other kinds of knowledge work, but whether a book is really well received and sells a lot is just other people's opinions. So it's not the same thing as trying to squat 400 pounds, because again, you either get stapled by the bar or you get the bar up and I don't care how many people are saying you're great or you're not, or we like this, or we don't it. The bar is on the ground or up on your shoulders.
1: Yeah. You can't hide, right? I
0: can't hide or rationalize or blow it off to other people's opinions.
1: Yeah. And, and that's where it's either you run faster, you lift the bar or you don't, you either get the motorcycle engine working or it doesn't like there's discrete, you know, concrete, um, definitions or define periods of success or failure. And I think what what tends to happen is as we reach success in some of especially these kind of intellectual fields, is it's easy to tell whatever narrative we want and our inner story gets shifted to whatever it is we want it to be, right? Because if Bill Gates fails at quote unquote fails at something, it's easy to rationalize it, move on to the next swing, you know, keep that narrative in his head that he wants it to be. If you are practicing something that has a concrete, you know, success or failure, you can't, it's harder to rationalize or come up with a story that allows you to, you know, still think you're superhuman when you sit there and, and fail at, you know, lifting, you know, bench pressing 200 pounds or whatever. Right.
0: If Bill Gates would spend a little bit less time reading all the world's literature, and spend more time lifting weights, or woodworking, or trying to be a mechanic, I think he'd be a more humble person. I mean, who knows if he'd still be married, who knows if he'd still chum up with Jeffrey Epstein. Um, but I do. I, okay, so counterpoint. I have two counterpoints. And I'm thinking on the fly here. This is very, uh, this is first draft. That's what we do on this podcast. So one would be there are a lot of douches, that engage in sports, particularly weightlifting and and running. Well, I shouldn't say that. Those are the worlds that we know best. So if you go to a weightlifting forum or a running forum, you'll be not surprised to see that there are a lot of people that are are egotistical jerks and they're posting about their workouts and there's this and there's that and all the other. So clearly it's not going to bulletproof you. And it can also go in a direction where it, instead of humbling you, unhumbles you or makes you more arrogant and then connected to that, is I don't think it's a coincidence that so many white-collar types gravitate to triathlon because of all the sports, triathlon, and golf. And People say triathlon is the new golf. It's the most influenced by external factors that you can buy. So in triathlon, and I know this because before I got into lifting weights, I used to do triathlon. You can buy a qualifying spot to Kona. And what I mean by that isn't that you don't have to train your ass off. You do. And it isn't that you don't have to finish a certain time. You do. But the best bike, the best wheels that you put on that bike, the best skin suit that you wear while riding that bike, and now with the Vaporflies, the best shoes that you can wear, that can amount to like 20 to 30 minutes over the course of an Ironman triathlete triathlon, excuse me. So it's not like it. And I just wonder if there's like this push and same thing in golf, right? Like the difference between golfing with a crap pair of clubs and a really nice pair of clubs is multiple strokes. And I'm not taking away from these people. So you still have to work your ass off. And believe you me, when I was trying to qualify for Kona, I had a budget for triathlon and I never came in under that budget because I was buying speed where I could too. So I'm not saying like, and it's right or it's wrong, but it's just—it's very different than something as plain and simple as running, or lifting weights, or woodworking, or fixing a motorcycle, where it's harder to buy to, to buy success. So two-part question, yeah. Pick, pick where you want to
1: start. <laughs> it's interesting. I, I I think you're right on the triathlon sense and this. It, it, it it's a difficult challenge, but there's ways to manage it. Uh, to make it slightly easier, make yourself progress faster than you're you're truly able to if everyone was on an equal footing. So I think there there's something to that to a degree. And I would even venture out and say you see the same thing in other sports, but maybe in the sense of the 40, 50, 6-year-old people who might go get supplemental testosterone or low T or whatever have you to be able to, you know, improve their performance in this this regard, Um, even though in the grand scheme of things, their performance shouldn't matter because like, who cares what a 50 year old, you know, guy does. So, you know, I think if if I'm I'm sitting here and thinking, okay we're saying, you know, exercise or doing something that has concrete success, failures can keep you grounded. Well, that's true. But it can also—it's like anything. If you push it too far to the extreme, it can feed that ego. It can feed that delusion.
0: Yes. So one rule I have that um, longtime listeners of the podcast will know well, because Steve always complains about it, is my Instagram is texting Steve. So I know that again, I, I'm not—I'm not above anyone here. I know that if I was on Instagram. I'd probably be super tempted to and give in to the temptation to like post images of my workouts. But then it goes from being something that I hold privately that is humbling where I succeed or fail to something that I can selectively only share successes, make look better than it is, literally like enrich the pictures with better color and post them, which is not grounding at all. So I just send my squats to Steve and he never responds. So I don't get any approval even from him. Um, joking aside, I think it's helpful to realize, well, what is going to make an activity like this grounding for you? And then how do you keep it that way? And I think in today's social media sharing obsessed world, I think one way to do it is truly to keep it to yourself into your truly intimate community. So what I mean by this, there is a huge difference between crushing a PR and sending that video to the 40 people that are at members of the gym that you train at, that have been supporting you along the way versus putting that out on Instagram for the universe. There's a huge difference between doing woodwork or making jewelry and going to your local crafts fair and selling it and getting external validation for how good the work is versus again, putting that out on social media for all to see and comment on. And I would argue that the more intimate you keep it, the better. Um, And I think it's really nuanced and important. It's not to say you should keep it to yourself. It's to say you should share it with a community of practitioners that are, have skin in the game and are doing it like you and get your external validation from them, not go seek it from the world at large because that seeking it from the world at large is the very stuff that, that, that is ego chasing. I think.
1: I like that. I mean, I think, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think, you know, like most things that we talk about on this podcast, there's a lot of nuance here. And for the everyday person, I don't think you're suggesting, hey, if you have Twitter, Instagram, or whatever, don't share anything. It's just have something in your life that is grounded, that keeps you grounded, that isn't 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 part of this external validation seeking social media type world.
0: Right. Or if you're going to seek that validation, do it again, do it in a community of practitioners that you know personally and that are kind of like going on that same journey with you. And I still think that if you are a McKinsey consultant or an investment banker or um, a powerful lawyer or the principal or the head administrator of a school district, name that white collar high up job. I still think that having a concrete pursuit, even if you're sharing it, is better than not having a concrete pursuit. No doubt about it. Because you're still going to fail. You might not share that failure, but you're going to know what it's like to fail. But I think even better is keeping it private with you and a community of practitioners. And I could be totally wrong. Again, this is very much first draft. And that could also be temperamental. Maybe people that know that if they share stuff, they're going to get like huge ego rush from it shouldn't share. And other people that are like, oh, I can truly just share this on Instagram and not care what anyone thinks. I don't really think those people exist, but if you do and you're out there, then that's fine. Share away.
1: Yeah, I mean, I like it. I I, I think again, it comes back to this balance and nuance. I'm thinking in my head of the phenomenon of like Strava, right, where you have people who like become obsessed about sharing it on Strava, Stra- sharing their runs or exercise or bike rides on Strava and trying to get you know up the leaderboard etc etc and it shifts why they do the sport or running or cycling or whatever to something about like moving up the leaderboard and getting their validation versus you know why they probably got in it itself it's not that Strava itself is bad it's that if that If it shifts why you do what you do, then it becomes bad, right?
0: Yeah. And I don't even think it's necessarily just the shift. I think it is. All right. I'm going to get a little philosophical here. I think you can bend reality when you're on a platform like that in the same way that you can bend reality when you're in a white collar workplace. And what I mean by that is on a platform like Strava or Instagram or anything, you don't have to share your failures, So if you nail the lift or you make the great table, you go ahead and post a picture. But if one of like the legs is not balancing or like you don't hit the lift, you reposition the freaking camera and you do it again or you fix it and then you share that. And if you do that repeatedly over time, you're creating an identity that doesn't have those failures. Mm -hmm. So I think, yes, it's 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 the external validation thing, but I think it's also... The getting back into the white collar world where any failure can be rationalized, you can change literally like the angle of a camera and it looks better. Well, then you're not failing out in the world. Um, so So I think that that's another part of it, too.
1: So I guess kind of putting this all together, it's essentially having something in your life where you can't apply a filter to it.
0: Yeah, in filters in the broadest sense. Filters in the same way that at the workplace, a filter can be if you're super powerful, everyone's going to say yes to your ideas, whether they're good or not. Filter can be if you're not super powerful in the workplace, you can always say that, well, the reason they didn't like it is because, you know, political. You know, Matt Crawford in in Shop Class of Soulcraft talks about um, how soul crushing it is to have a job where someone asks you, did you do a good job or not? And instead of being able to point and say the motorcycle runs, the bar was lifted, the time is three seconds, you have to launch into a diatribe of explanations about what you do, who judges it, what kind of mood they were in, how they judged it, how that might change over time. Um, And if you're good enough and you're smart enough, you can always convince yourself that you are successful and you just never fail. Like, I don't think that Bill Gates, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, you know, these billionaires that we talked about a couple episodes back, I don't truly think that they believe that they never fail. I just think that they, they don't feel failure in a visceral way, and therefore they lose their humility.
1: I think we should call this the Instagram filter theory of life. <laughs> I'm I'm loving this conversation. I mean, I, I think like we're really hitting
0: on something important and I very rarely say that it's so funny. We're talking about humility and I'm like, we are hitting on something important. (laughs) Um, But yeah, it just seems so basic and you see it everywhere.
1: Yeah, no, I, I, I'm glad we've kind of stumbled upon this um, or meandered our way through it because I think, I think the filter metaphor and Branching that out to as broad as possible is so true in the sense that we can always, we can always, for a lot of things in life now, it's easy to rationalize, shift, change the camera angle, you know, um, apply whatever filter we want to make it seem like we're always moving upward or always moving towards something. And the danger in that is that we start to believe that narrative, right? Because we don't have that thing to knock us back into that sense of reality. We don't have that point where we are coming, where we are putting in a ton of effort and then completely and utterly failing to achieve what we thought we could.
0: Right. And our brains are ego machines that create ego. So I think a big part of this is these activities... Um, probably have to be concrete in the world. And, and what I mean by that is like it, you have to kind of be able to, and I'm not saying that people with disabilities can't do this because presumably depending on a disability, you can do woodwork, you can make a sculpture. Maybe the one exception is a math proof. Like my sense is if you talk to a mathematician and a proof, like you either solve it or you don't. And when you don't, it like you probably feel very similar to a runner that's trying to get under five minutes for the mile and runs five oh eight, whatever, like you probably feel pretty crushed. But there are a few things that are intellectual that are so concrete because the whole point of the brain is to make concrete things not concrete in a way that makes you feel good.
1: Yeah. And we're, you know, there's a whole set of uh, kind of cognitive biases that are great at kind of diluting ourselves into thinking that or to kind of dissuade our, our failures, for say. For example, the one, even in something concrete, I'm thinking in the workplace or in the athletic field, how often have you s- seen someone fail? And then they start to rationalize by like, oh, I didn't really try. Like I didn't really put in effort. So it's like this, this inability to deal with this like concrete failure is something that like our brain almost has this like psychological immune system to like yes. respond to and, and and get rid of, you know?
0: Yeah. And again, I'm not saying don't share. I think it's really important to share because I know that um, like science just says that we're a social species. But again, share with the people that you're going through the journey with that will be honest with you and that you don't need to apply a filter. Now, it does, it, it raises an interesting question for you, Steve, because I, I don't have an answer. What about people that have, they tend to at least, have very large social media platforms and they, they do share their failures and a skeptic could say, well, that's just performative sharing and they're only sharing this failure. So a bunch of people can tell them how great it is that they're so vulnerable. And in fact, they're turning that failure into a success. Or one could say the opposite. That, hey, these people are like doing exactly what you're saying to do, which is like bringing all of themselves to bear on social media. And I think both of those are very legitimate um, claims and ways of thinking. So maybe maybe it's just that that like huh, some questions we don't have answers to right now.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think for the person itself, it kind of depends on on what they're doing and why they're doing and what they get out of it, you know? Um, because if you're, if your inclination for sharing those, those failures is primarily driven by this kind of performative, well, this is going to help me on my social media, make me feel, look vulnerable and allow people to connect to me, et cetera, et cetera. Then over time, it's probably a negative thing. But
0: isn't that the human condition when you're feeling really shitty about something and you've fail and you share with a close friend isn't what you're asking for like love and acceptance and like connection
1: yeah i mean i i i think uh, but like that's with someone you kind of know and appreciate i think it i don't know i i think there's this subtle nuance of like (laughs) is it is it to degree real In the sense that you're looking for that, you're looking for some way to deal with that failure and make sense of it and maybe even feel better about it versus, oh, this is going to help me look vulnerable, you know?
0: Yeah, it's tough Um, because I would argue like, well, the whole point of posting anything on social media is for other people to see it because otherwise you could just send it as a text to a close friend. And I don't think there's anything wrong with going on social media and being like, Hey, I want this to do really well. I think the issue is when you go on social media and you try to convince yourself that you're doing it because you don't want this thing, like you don't care when you actually care. And I don't want to just make this about social media because I know we have a lot of listeners that aren't on social media. Um, But it's just one interesting tangent.
1: Yeah. Yeah one thing I'm thinking out loud here in my rough draft of this conversation is it might depend a little bit on how much you think social media is your real world versus you're not like, Mm. you you know how some people like get trapped into the idea that, that it's like, oh, social media reflects the world when it doesn't. Right. So if you go into it and you start sharing and being vulnerable in the sense that you think this is like the world and this is like how it is, then that might reflect differently than if you sit there and think like, Oh, this is just, you know, part of my brand platform, etc." I'm not sure. Yeah. I, I, I just read
0: a fascinating essay um, by Leslie Jameson and I think it was called Sim Life. I wish I had the book in front of me, but basically she got super involved in like Second Life that crazy simulation game that was like crushing it in 2003 and it was like 2013 or 2015 so long after the peak of Second Life she like went all in on Second Life and there're still like 600,000 people that go all in on Second Life and it was this fascinating essay about like the type of people that are in Second Life what they perceive as the benefits, what happens. Like I, it, it, and, and she had this one line in there um, that, um, that you know, Let me, let's do this. For listeners, we're going to pause the podcast real quick. I'm going to get the book because it's so spot on. All right, so I went to pick up the book. The essay is called Sim Life. And the quote that I have is, but if Second Life promised a future in which people would spend hours each day inhabiting their online identity haven't we found ourselves inside it only it's come to pe- to pass on facebook twitter and instagram instead i just love that cuz like what she's saying is that we all like make fun of second life which was like the simulation where you go perfect the life where there's only successes and people make fun of that now but she's like well wait a minute like we've just taken it to the next level which is
1: social media which allows you to do that with your real life And it blurs the lines to the degree that at least with Second Life, you know, at some level what you're doing. And in social media kind of world, it's blurred together. So you don't realize it or there's not that barrier there. Yeah. And
0: and, and so, okay, so the book is called Make It Scream, Make It Burn by Leslie Jameson. The essay is called Sim Life. It is mind-blowingly good. The whole book is, but particularly that essay. Connecting it back to our topic, like, and to me, the connection is really clear, but my brain works very bizarrely, but it's the same simulation that you can create in a corporate environment or any organization where there aren't concrete results, because you can create this simulation that allows you to not really feel your failures, your vulnerabilities, your weaknesses, shake them off, keep rising, keep rising, keep rising, and suddenly you're completely out of touch. Anyone that does have true vulnerabilities or weaknesses... You're moving way too fast to even like be on that wavelength and recognize that those things can exist. And that's how you become an egotistical jerk, perhaps.
1: So to take this one step further, I'm wondering if this is why, and I'm painting with broad brushes here, leadership positions tend to lose touch with reality and like enter this kind of simulation world more than the workers who do the work in my head I'm thinking uh, I'll give you an example is that a lot of times in um, in this in the school world right those at the kind of superintendent you know leadership level often lose touch with what's going on in the day-to-day classroom right and there's this big disconnect and you have that same disconnect when you're looking at leadership in almost any organization, they lose touch with what's going on to the day-to-day with the workers, whatever the field is. And the workers are sitting here being like, why in the world are we putting so much emphasis on this? When like, you know, every day I see A, B, C, X, Y, Z, which would help more than spending, you know, X amount of money over here.
0: Yeah. This is also where, um, where the critique against like disconnected elites is. Um, One example that comes to mind for me is people that are in ivory tower type positions want to use the word Latinx, but when you ask Latino Hispanic people what they want to be called, over 85% of them do not want to be called Latinx many of them are like, what the hell does Latinx even mean? So the people actually having that concrete lived experience are in a totally different reality. Now, this is about how you want to identify as a person, but it's the same theme as getting the barbell dropped on you. Because if you're actually amongst that group of people, you would would know exactly what they want to be called because you're doing the quote-unquote work. And when you mess up, the barbell's going to drop. You're going to look like an idiot and you're not going to have this like, you know, higher than thou theory about what to call another group of people. So I think that what we're getting to in in our Instagram filter of life doing concrete things theory is that the closer that you can get to the actual work, the more informed that you'll be. And in particular, when you talk about preventing yourself from becoming an egotistical jerk, You need to be able to fail in ways that you cannot write off that failure. You cannot benefit from that failure. It's just a failure. There is nothing like attempting a lift in my basement when no one is looking and missing it. To make me feel like, whoo, like, man, I can sell a lot of books. We can have a lot of followers on Twitter. And I just got destroyed.
1: It's. Theory versus practice, right? In the, co- in the coaching world, um, I'll take it to that level. You know, there's a lot of, it, it's easy to come up with theories on why A, B, or C might be the best way to train or the training system. But what really brings you back to reality is when you get in there and you're working with athletes and developing their training and this thing that you know on paper it looked like the grandest thing that was going to improve all your athletes and you get to the big meet or the big competition and someone blows up or they all blow up and they fail there's nothing to bring you back to reality like that experience and i think you know having that that feedback having that hand in the practice whether that practice is on the athletic field or in you know some intellectual field or some kind of craft that you're doing, I think is incredibly important so that you don't get lost in this kind of simulated theoretical world where it's easy to rationalize, you know, pivot all of these things um, to make it where you don't have to come face to face with reality.
0: Yeah, yeah, and at the individual level, I think it is. like the takeaway is figure out a practice. Where there are very concrete objective successes and failures that you can trace directly back to yourself. Don't run away from failures. Don't go recklessly fail, but don't try to like, you know, engineer the practice so you never fail. Do the thing. Sometimes you'll succeed, sometimes you'll fail. Sure, share the thing, but share it with other people that are doing it with you. Or don't share it at all if you're doing it alone. If you're going to share it more broadly, ask yourself, like, why am I doing this? And if it's for any type of validation or to make yourself feel better about failing or any of that, then don't. Again, outside of your circle. Um, Here's another quote from the Jameson essay. Second life started to plateau just as Facebook started to explode. The rise of Facebook wasn't the problem of a competing brand so much as the problem of a competing model it seemed that people wanted a curated version of real life more than they wanted another life entirely they wanted to become the sum of their most flattering profile pictures more than they wanted to become a wholly separate avatar
1: man that nails it it really does i mean i, I mean and just just think i'm thinking of facebook in the sense that what is it we cultivate the experience we want by putting out you know the the pictures that we want the filtered pictures that we want the quote unquote friends we want to talk to and be a part of you know our our world and it's also why on Facebook you probably have all these crazy disagreement arguments and stuff like that because it's it yeah it's interesting it's wild
0: right And in 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 back to the failure thing I know that something that we've both done is when we're, particularly when there is a chance that we are going to be really successful in something at the growth equation. Whether it's we publish an article that we just have an inkling is going to go viral on the internet, whether it's when a book comes out, we do not think that we can avoid the crazy ego that comes with that. We acknowledge that that'll happen to us. So we just choose to opt out by Doing a really hard workout, going for a run, going for a hard hike, doing something very real and concrete regularly during those periods of time versus sitting on the internet, like getting more and more in that disconnected world. If your book's so good, your book changed my life. All that's great. I'm not saying we ignore it, but man, we make sure that we're also doing something concrete that is hard that we're failing in so we don't get our egos just taking off on a Uh, like a a illusory rocket ship to the moon or whatever.
1: Yeah. So I I think that's the takeaway is figure out something in your life that can keep you grounded and that you have to struggle with and give some, some sort of concrete success or failure. And try to keep it private.
0: And if you, and if you really have a strong inclination not to keep it private, just ask yourself why.
1: And, and, I would I would I would say on that keep it private. Think of it like think of it like you're on a team. Right? If I'm on a cross-country team, it's good and beneficial to share those successes and failures with my teammates who I'm going through things with. But I don't I don't need to broadcast it to the world and be dependent on others. I need to be I need to have that those people who are going on that journey with me and understand it, those are the ones who matter.
0: Yeah. Or have really close friends that are such good friends that they're like Steve, where anytime you send them a picture of you doing a lift,
1: they just don't respond at all. <laughs> I'm just keeping you grounded, man. No positive feedback here. Yeah. Pretty, pretty soon I'm going to be like, what, what in the world is that squat? Look at that form. It's so bad. It's horrible. It's horrible. I don't know how you're lifting anything. Yeah.
0: Well, it feels like a good place to wrap up. Um, We hope that you enjoyed this conversation as much as we did. Um, Again, if you want to get all kinds of neat stuff, uh, support our work, check us out on Patreon, www.patreon.com slash the growth equation. Um, we've got monthly live discussions where we talk about books and ideas like this. We've got a quarterly mastermind group signed copies of our books, ebooks, guides, exclusive podcasts, um, you name it. So yeah, we're trying to create that kind of small intimate community um, where successes and failures can be shared and where we can vulnerably discuss topics like that and also realize that hey, sometimes that community is too big and, you know, the thing isn't to share with the other Growth Equation members how you're lifted lift it. It's actually just to do it alone, and that's fine too. Thanks for listening to the Growth Equation Podcast. Learn more about our work and find show notes at our website, www.thegrowtheq.com. Follow us on Twitter, at B. Stahlberg and at Steve Magnus. And if you like what you listen to, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, as this goes a long way in helping it reach others.